Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm Charles Henderson, uh, representative IWP, and I'll be introducing Brandon today. Before we get started, the Institute of World Politics is not a think tank, but a graduate school of national security and international affairs, dedicated to developing leaders with a sound understanding of international realities and the ethical conduct of statecraft, based on knowledge and appreciation of the founding principles of American political economy and the Western moral tradition. This event is on the record and sponsored by Kosciusko, uh, Chair of Polish Studies in the Center of Inter-American Studies. Today's guest, Brandon Weikert, is a former congressional staffer and is the founder of the C and CEO of the Weikert Report, um, a world news website. He's also a contributing editor at American Greatness. Brandon received his bachelor's in political science from DePaul University his Master of Arts in Statecraft and um, National Securities of National Security Affairs from the Institute of World Politics. Without further ado, thank you. Thank you very much. Well, um, thank you all for coming out today. Uh, we're going to talk, as the title says, about the true ambitions of Russian foreign policy. Now, obviously, there's been a lot of rhetoric in the press. Um, I think the important thing to do is to try to view the world from the way that perhaps the Kremlin views the world. This isn't meant to be a Putin apology tour, far from it. I'm just trying to give some perspective to people who may not be getting the full story, um, the full perspective, rather. Um, Russia's, Russia is a large country. It spans a long period of time, and it has gone through these iterations of growth, contraction, growth. Uh, it's, it's a lot like an organic entity. And it has a long history of um, authoritarianism. I'm not just talking about the communist era. I'm talking about going back to the czars, the, the very beginning of Russia. It has a long track record with central authority, uh, the rule of the Silnaya Ruka, which is a Russian concept, it's the, the rule of the strong fist to keep the country together. A country as large, as vast as Russia, with as many different ethnicities and religions under it, the assumption is that one needs to be a strong man, a strong ruler. And so in that regard, Vladimir Putin, as awful as some of his actions may be, and they are, from our perspective especially, um, it's actually pretty much in keeping with traditional Russian foreign policy, going back to Ivan the Terrible. Um, and you see hints, actually, of Ivan the Terrible and Putin, uh, Catherine the Great, Peter the Great also. Um, so there's this notion, this vilification of Putin, I think, to an almost cartoonish level. Uh, Putin's not our friend, but he's also not our existential enemy. There's been many congressional hearings as late uh, from people like General Dunford at the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who I respect, but I just disagree when he says that they are the leading existential threat. I understand we have our problems with these people, but it's, it's, they're not insurmountable is what I'm getting at. If Nixon could go to China, I'm pretty sure we could figure out a way to go to Russia. Um, this is just a kind of a, I thought this was kind of a humorous image. Um, this man is expected to rule all of that. Um, it's... <laughs> It's quite a daunting task, even for a country 
that is not as dysfunctional. And as you'll see, Russia is quite dysfunctional today. Um, it spans, as I said, from Vladivostok to the Black Sea, going from east to west. It touches the Arctic in the north, and it goes against, it's against uh, China to its south, and part a small sliver of, um, of North Korea. And with the Kuril Islands, it also touches Japanese territory. So it's, it's, it's a big place. And its population, and we're going to spend a lot of time we're going to spend a lot of time about on demography because, in many ways, demography is destiny. And uh, if you have been following Putin as long as I have, and if you've been studying his speeches and what he's talked about going back to the year 2000, Vladimir Putin is obsessed with one thing in particular, Russians having more babies. That has been the big thrust. In uh, this last December, he gave his version of the Russian State of the Union address to the Russian parliament, the Duma, uh, in which he said this, the meaning of the whole social policy is the multiplication of the human capital as the main wealth of our country. Human capital is a term, it's an economic term, uh, it has to do with the uh, productivity of a country related to its population. Uh, Adam Smith, the founder of capitalism himself, observed that there is a positive correlation between a uh, healthy, vibrant, growing population and a healthy, vibrant economy. If you don't have a, a good human, you don't, you don't have good enough human capital, your economy will um, not be very good. Uh, so, some, so we're gonna go from east to west in Russia. So overall, after annexing Crimea, there are now is two million people that they added on. So there's about 146 million people overall in a country that is the largest land border in the world. It spans about 11 time zones. That's not a lot of people. Compare that to, say, the United States, in which we have about 315 million people. Uh, in the, the Russian Far Eastern districts, there's about 6 million. Uh, moving west, you've got in the Siberian district about 19 million. In the Ural district, which is now considered Euro-Asia, you've got 12 million. And in the Volga district, also in Euro-Asia, you've got 29 million. There are Fewer people in the overall eastern section of Russia than there are in the western portion. The western portion is the side that borders Europe. It's, it's the more built-up side. Um, and yet, paradoxically, Russia is a petro-economy. It's reliant on pet, uh, energy production, the, the, the mining of natural resources, and most of those are in the sparsely populated east. So this is a paradox that it's a square that Russia's been trying to you know, circle for, pardon me, for about 20, 20, 30 years now. Um, another, another proof that Putin has been obsessed with Russian baby making, uh, he went his first year in office down, he was the first, I believe he was the first Russian leader since Brezhnev to go down in the year 2000 to uh, the Russian Far East, uh, Blagovashensk, uh, which is a city right across the Amur River from a vibrant Chinese province. Uh, he said to the rapt audience in Blagoveshensk, if you do not take practical steps, have babies, uh, to advance the Far East soon, after a few decades, the Russian population here will be speaking Japanese, Chinese, and Korean. And like clockwork, especially in the case of Chinese, uh, the Russian Far East is being inundated by uh, Chinese immigration, both legal and illegal. Um, 
this is a quote that I, I was doing some research and uh, Victor Dyatlov uh, is a leading expert in, at Irkutsk. Irkutsk is one of the cosmopolitan centers in the far, in, in the eastern uh, Siberian part of, uh, of Russia. Uh, and at the University of Irkutsk, he said that in 2009, China is the destiny of Siberia. Our present and future depends in every respect on what happens in China. The only direction we can move in is integration and cooperation between Russia and China. But we don't know what form that integration will take. The future of Siberia and its people is defined not by the people here, but in Moscow. What people in Siberia think isn't that important. Siberia is the national treasure, and the people here are just meant to help the government exploit these resources. That is a critical understanding here. Um, since at least 2005, the Putin regime has been obsessed with intensifying its grip on power, in the, especially in the outlying districts. It has gotten especially bad ever since probably 2011, but really since the, the protests in 2012 when Putin resumed power, when resumed the presidency, this is when he really started piling on with trying to put his apparatchiks in control of the far-off provinces. This was in part to aggregate power toward him to ensure that the wealth of the Far East is going into the coffers of Moscow, but it was also because he feared the sentiment on the part of the Russian Far Easterners, they're, they're, they're very, they, they like China, they like the Asians, they like doing business with Asia. Uh, why wouldn't you? It's a vibrant economy, and they're geographically far closer. Uh, I lived, I was born in South Bend, Indiana, and I lived in Chicago for a long time, and I can tell you right now, because of the geography and the infrastructure, people living in South Bend have far more in common with Chicago, Illinois, than they do with Indianapolis, Indiana. It's kind of the same kind of logic. Um, so you can see, and there's also something uh, that's important to note. In China, they have, because of the one-child policy, they have an overabundance of young men. In Russia, because of the way the life expectancies have been panning out, say in the post-Soviet era, there's, a, there's an abundance of, of women, young women. And so you're seeing a lot of young Chinese men, particularly in the northern parts of China, who can't make it into the cities because they have restriction, uh, restrictions in the, as to how many people they let in. They're actually being encouraged to immigrate either legally or usually illegally into the Russian Far East, and they get there, and then they, they find good lives, and they find a wife, and so you're seeing this kind of fusion between the Russian Far East, not just politically and economically, but also in terms of you know, familial relations. Uh, occurring in, in that part of the world, which is going to start to have severe impacts on the way that the, the on the evolution of the Russian Far East. Uh, there's between two to five million Chinese illegal immigrants. It's believed there hasn't been a census in Russia in about in over a decade, and record keeping in the Far East is especially difficult. Um, they there was a panicked report that came from the Russian government in the Far East saying that 1.5 million Chinese have illegally moved into Russia over the last 18 months. Now, Moscow Carnegie Center says it's probably close to 250 to 300,000, but in either event, if trends persist, as they likely are going to, um, the ethnic Chinese will become the dominant ethnic group in the Russian Far East in about 20 to 30 years. Uh, pivoting to the Russia's south, which is another integral part, and the southern periphery connects through the South Caucasus, it touches against Central Asia, and it goes into the Muslim world. It goes into the Middle East. 
Uh, there's about 15 million people of Muslim background in Russia today. It's 11% of the overall population. It's predicted that by the middle of this century, 2050, it'll be one-third of all overall Russian population. Um, fun fact, everybody keeps talking about Londonistan and the rise of Islam in London and Brussels and Paris, and there's certainly a rise in it. Um, the largest European city, or the city that has the largest amount of, of Muslims living in it is Moscow. It has a million, one million Muslim residents and 1.5 million Muslim migrant workers living there. So the Kremlin in particular, it, it's not surprising that we see, given the, the two Chechen wars that they fought, given the, the fact that they've had such a uh, problem dealing with their Muslim community, particularly in Russia's south, it's not surprising that Putin is attempting to create stable relatively stable relationships with the power centers in the Middle East. Um, we're going to touch on that a little bit later, but just keep that in your mind. It's not all about sticking it to America, though that certainly plays a role. Um, there's real legitimate concerns that he has a growing Muslim population that he wants to keep placating. And so he's going to have to do things that keep the Muslim community, he believes, will keep them uh, happy with his reign and the current leadership of Russia. Russian demography itself is in precipitous decline. And keep in mind what I said about Adam Smith, because if you don't have a healthy population, you're not going to have a healthy country. You're not going to have this strong, vibrant power. In the West, we have this image of Russia that it's the Soviet Union 2.0. Hillary Clinton called, uh, uh, in the, the election, Hillary Clinton called um, Putin repeatedly. He was the new, he, she likened him to Hitler. I think that was completely off. Um, again, if anything, he's akin to Ivan the Terrible, not necessarily a good guy, but not on the level of Stalin or Hitler. Uh, the fertility rate in Russia is 1.78 births. This is as of December of 16. Uh, 1.78 births per 1,000 women. Most demographers believe that in order to maintain what's known as societal replacement, which is the absolute bare minimum that you will be able, people that will be needed to perpetuate your society, you need to have 2.1 children per 1,000 women. He, uh, Putin, was extolling the virtues of his policies in the last Russian State of the Union because he got the number, he claims his policies got the number of fertility rate from 1.7 to 1.78. Sounds like a small margin, but that is actually an impressive feat given how precipitous the decline is, but we can't forget the fact that they've got a abundance of young Chinese immigrants in the East, young Muslim, uh, Muslim people living in the, in the South, and also he just annexed two million virile Ukrainians, uh, ethnic Russians in Ukraine. So that's also contributing, I think, to that. The Russian population itself is very ill, high rates of smoking, alcoholism, obesity, environmental degradation, HIV, AIDS, TB, heart disease, suicide. We talk about the suicide rates here in the United States a lot. You should see what they are. They're, they're, quite, they're quite astronomical in Russia, particularly for Russian males. In fact, the current Russian male life expectancy is around 64 years at birth. You're expected to live about 64 years. That's 15 years lower than the life expectancy for males in Germany, Italy, and Sweden. There's also a 10 to 13 year age gap or gap between male-female life expectancies at birth. Russian female life expectancy is 74. Uh, that's 
bad compared to their Polish counterparts, which is an average life expectancy for females of 80 years of age. Also, more interestingly, and this plays into the rise of Orthodox Christianity in Russia or the return of it, uh, the UN has recently reported, as of two years ago, that Russian abortion rate was 37.4 abortions per 1,000 women aged 15 to 44. That's the highest of any country represented in data collected by the United Nations. So let that sink in. This is not a healthy population. And I, I don't mean to bore you, but, but demography is the critical aspect, I think, that many Western observers in particular miss out on when they're talking about the threat of Russia. Uh, the Chinese refer to something that they do, it's a form of a threat assessment called the Comprehensive National Power Assessment, CNP. The Soviets used to do correlation of forces. It's not just about looking at capabilities plus intentions when you're doing a threat assessment, which is the general equation for doing a threat assessment. For these countries, I think, and, and previous countries had a, a very healthy way of looking at comprehensive power, economics, social policy, demography. How are these things? These things are going to influence military threat far more so than the amount of nuclear weapons you have. And by the way, Russia does have an impressive nuclear arsenal. Um, but getting to the Orthodox Christian issue, there was a great article in Christianity Today about a year ago. Andre uh, Andre Shuren wrote it. One cannot understand Russian politics without reference to Russian Orthodoxy and the influence this faith has had on the formation of the predominant worldview in Russian culture. This is critical. Uh, we keep trying to impute the Soviet experience onto Russia. And we keep saying that, well, because in 2005, Vladimir Putin said, he lamented the publicly, the, he, he said that the, the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical disaster of the last century. That he was not lamenting the loss of communism. In fact, he has made, over the last 15 years, a series, including one in front of Lenin's tomb, a series of public pronunciations that communism was, quote, a bad idea. He claimed that Lenin was full of silly ideas. He's not a communist. He's not communist. He was lamenting the geopolitical influence that the Soviet Union, when it fell, that Russia lost. He thinks it made them weak. 72% of Russia's current population is Eastern Orthodox Christian. Another 18% of the population is unaffiliated Christian. This is according to a 2014 Pew Research Survey. Religiosity in general is on the rise in Russia with 54% of Russians claiming they are somewhat religious. 56% of Russians saying that they believe in God. However, only 7% of Russians uh, consistently attend religious services, so they're a lot like my Catholic friends. Um, you know, it's, it, uh, it's one of those things. But clearly, clearly we're witnessing the return of religion in Russia, which is kind of a big deal, but it's a return because of after the, the Soviet Union gutted the country of religion. But it's a return on a cultural level to Russian norms. Russian norms, which by the way, Russian norms do not include democracy. That's another key thing to keep in mind. Um, this is a Yale Global Health Survey back in 2014 again, did an interesting assessment in which they found that they did four potential scenarios uh, in terms of a projection from 1950 to 2100 projection of where Russian fertility rates would go. And Basically, they found that Russia's future depends on fertility, and for now, a population increase seems unlikely. This explains, by the way, why Putin is so metaphorically and literally gung-ho about reclaiming as many ethnic Russians of those 25 million who fell outside of the Russian sphere of influence after the Soviet Union collapse. This is why he wants to regain as many of them 
back into the Russian fold as possible. It's a way to jumpstart fertility levels. Uh, it's a way for him, he thinks, to expand the economy, increase growth. And the goal ultimately is to get as many Russians to move far east as possible so they start repopulating that area before the Chinese outpopulate them. In terms of returning to Russian norms, in terms of jumpstarting Russian demography in order to jumpstart its economy over the long run, Putin has enacted onerous taxes on couples who divorce. Putin has created incentives for couples who have more than one child. These are similar things we're seeing Japan do to jumpstart their own declining fertility rates. It's been met with mixed success in Japan, and I suspect it's going to be met with mixed success in Russia, given the timetable that he's working against, that Putin's working against. He's, uh, Putin has also encouraged, through tax incentives, couples to adopt a second child. There's a lot of orphans in Russia. Uh, we know this from recent stories about the Majinsky Act and, and you know, the, the litany of things coming out about potential Trump-Russia collusion and whatever. But the point is that there's a big orphan problem in Russia, and Putin wants to try to get those kids out of the orphanages so the West can't keep pressing him to allow, allow them to be adopted in the West, potentially by um, homosexual couples, which, of course, Putin has enacted onerous anti-LGBTQ <laughs> laws. Uh, this is, yes, it's because of the return of traditional Orthodox Christianity. Obviously, if you are a traditional Christian, if you live by the biblical teachings strictly, you're not going to be very open to homosexuality and alternative lifestyles. There's also a very practical reason for this. It's because Putin is staring at his demographic charts saying, if I don't do something to jumpstart my fertility rates, encourage traditional marriages, encourage those traditionally married folks to have as many kids as possible, I'm going to be staring down the barrel of a Chinese soft invasion of my east, of being overwhelmed by a Muslim population that may not share the Russian cultural worldview, and so I'm going to do everything I can to disempower those forces by using state power to enact laws that we in the West understandably view as morally wrong, and in Chechnya what's going on with the, the massacring and the imprisoning of homosexuals is obviously repellent. Um, but there's, there's more than just hate involved. There is actual reason and logic. And I would argue, if you, if you look at Putin, it's probably more because of political expediency than it is because he's some kind of militant homophobe. Um, he's been reabsorbing ethnic Russian, as I noticed, eth ethnic Russian parts of the former Soviet Union, like Crimea. He's, uh, this is another, the picture in the upper right, He's reopened the old Cossack military schools for the young. This is because, in his view, the Bolsheviks rose to power and deracinated Russians away from their traditional culture. And so what Putin wants to do, and this is also a means of solidifying the legitimacy of his authority, and we saw this also, I spoke about this with Erdogan and the neo-Ottomanist push in Turkey, it's a similar trend. They're both trying to insert themselves or to align themselves with traditional, uh, in this case, Russian historical symbology. They want to use Russian historical experiences as a kind of guarantor of their power, saying, we are no different. Look, we are doing the things that used to be done in Mother Russia when Russia was great. He, this is his way of making Russia great again in his world. Um, 
More importantly, he's giving away land to Russians. And also, when, when my wife and I were at Oxford um, we in 2015, there were advertisements in the newspapers in England uh, that Putin was running to try to encourage Britons to pack up and move to the Russian Far East. They would be given land giveaways and come out. And it's not unlike what Catherine the Great, not unlike what Catherine the Great did uh, in Ukraine when she conquered Ukraine and made it Novorossiya, which is New Russia. She encouraged, in particular, I believe it was Eastern Ukraine, Eastern and Southern Ukraine. They were particularly sparsely populated because they were contentious regions. They were being debated between Russia and the Ottoman Empire at the time. She encouraged Europeans of all stripes to move to those lands and repopulate it under the flag of Russia. Putin is doing something similar with the Far East. There's also been, speaking about the Orthodox Christian Church, Symphonia is the policy, which is the official institutionalized, legalized, harmonious relations between the Orthodox Christian Church and the Russian government. Um, there's a law from the Soviet era that restricted proselytizing, evangelizing, uh, religious evangelizing. Uh, Putin has taken that, reinstituted it, and adapted it. Many people, when this law was passed, dubbed it in the West wrongly. They dubbed it in the New York Times as the, Washington Post, as the anti-Muslim law. Well, it was, it was, yes, it was restricting Islamic proselytizing in Russia, but it restricted all non-Orthodox proselytizing. It wasn't just Islam. It was all, it was Catholics, Protestants, Buddhism, whatever. Anything that was not Eastern Orthodox or Russian Orthodox was booted. And so you have these parallel trends of Putin returning to historical norms, of the rise of con conventional, traditional uh, Orthodox Christianity in Russia, and now you have in the ideological, geopolitical realm the rise of Neo-Eurasianism. And Neo-Eurasianism is an ultra-right nationalist and imperialist belief set. It emanates from, it's an old 1920s uh, ideology, it was the white Russians living abroad, mostly in, in Czechoslovakia and Poland, if memory serves, who, looking back at Russia, said, well, we wish that the Russians would embrace Eurasianism, which is this notion that Russia is not just a European power, it is a Eurasian power. It exists both in Europe and Asia. And therefore, um, therefore, we have to begin pivoting to the East, because we, if we rely solely on the West, we're never going to be respected, and we're not going to be developing the full breadth of our power and capability. And plus, culturally, the Russians, the Neo-Eurasianist view, and the Eurasianists of old, viewed Russia as not quite Western, as a Eurasianist civilization state, something that exists between and above and apart from, and that should therefore dominate both Europe and Asia. Uh, it is also based on classical geopolitics. I'm a graduate of this institute. We study hard geopolitics here. So Alfred Mahan, um, Alfred Mahan, Nicholas Spikeman, Sir Alfred Mackinder, uh, a lot of the founder, Alexander Dugan of Neo-Eurasianism, a lot of his stuff is based, at least dialectically, on the works of the great geostrategists of old. And basically, Dugan and the Neo-Eurasianists, and we're going to get to Dugan in about two seconds, uh, contend that the world is divided into three parts, the world island of the UK and US, Eurasia, dominated by Russia, and the Rimland, the states between the world island and Eurasia. According to Neo-Eurasianists, the seafaring Atlanticists, that's us, the Britons, um, 
will be forever locked into conflict with the autocratic land-based powers such as Russia. And Neo-Eurasianism reviles the cosmopolitan universalism of Western liberalism, and they, uh, they talk a lot about the cult of consumption and how the embrace of American and Western values after the fall of the Soviet Union corrupted Mother Russia, it divided Russia, uh, and therefore this is a reaction to um, Western liberalism. It's also it uses a lot of neo-fascist sloganeering. It uses a lot of symbols from Marx. It uses a lot, as I said, of the old geopolitical uh, dialectic as well. It's this weird fusion of nationalist imperialist sentiment, and it shares sympathies and supports not only of the European New Right. We often hear we often hear about Marine Le Pen. We often hear about, oh, it's the European New Right, they're all, they're all in, in lockstep with, with the, the right and the, the hard right in Russia. It's also the hard left in Europe. And I gave a lecture here about a month and a half ago on the budding Moscow-Berlin-Paris um, axis, and you find that the political divides in places like Germany and France are equally dominated by pro-Putinists on the right as they are on the left. Um, and also, Neo-Eurasianism and its founder, Alexander Dugan, who's written a series of books of which I've read, um, particularly the fourth political theory. Um, these are all required reading and have been since they were published in the 90s at Russian military universities. This, this is a very influential military theory. That is Alexander Dugan in the top. He's kind of a gonzo academic. Um, he grows the beard out because before Russia interacted with the Europeans, the Russian elite used to, used to be judged by the length of their beards. Um, and it was only when Russia became more Europeanized that the leadership started shaving the beard. And of course, being the founder of Neo-Eurasianism, Alexander Dugin wants nothing to do with European standards, even in uh, cleanliness. Um, and so you see here that the picture on top and the picture on the right, this is Dugin and his team of followers, his merry band, in Georgia in 08. Uh, they were taking pot shots and targets of opportunities in uh, Georgia. Putin is a scary guy because he puts his money where his mouth, or his rubles where his mouth is. And he will go, he was in Georgia in 08, he was in Crimea in 2014. In fact, he was famously fired by Putin for being too extreme because uh, he's the head of sociology department at Moscow State University. And in that capacity, he wrote several lectures about how the Ukrainians were dogs about how um, Russian soldiers should be going about committing, perpetra uh, perpetrating genocide against the Ukrainians in common territory, and this litany of things that even Putin was saying, whoa buddy, calm down. Um, and so you see two, two quotes here that line up quite nicely with things that are coming out of official Russian Orthodox Church. There's an antipathy to consumerism and their version of what they perceive to be Western liberalism. Cosmopolitanism is the, the word, and I'm throwing a rootless, and then you've got yourself quite a toxic brew of, of rhetoric. And this is in keeping with the Russian uh, Orthodox concept of Sobrenost, which is spiritual community of many jointly living people. It was, uh, it was something created by the long dead Nikolai, and I always butcher his name, forgive me, Nikolai Berdyaev. Individualism is alien to orthodoxy. The true freedom of the spirit is not found in the isolated autonomous person 
who finds self-affirmation and individualism. Instead, this freedom is found in the person who sees herself as a part of one spiritual organism, which is the church. The heavy Western emphasis on individualism does not resonate with this quest. You're going to see here there's a natural rubbing of wrong ways in terms of live free or die Americanism and Sobernos Russian Eurasianism. Again, keeping in, in, theory, in the, the theme with the crushing the perceived cult of consumerism, uh, you see Andre Shuren again. Whether, we, whether the Russians want to admit it or not, Russia today is far wealthier than it was at the end of the Cold War. There's been an explosion of abundance. Now granted, they have certainly suffered a lot economically. They're not, they haven't quite figured out capitalism. I don't think they're interested any longer in quite figuring it out. Um, but uh, this abundance cannot provide the sense of meaning they, the Russian people, are looking for. Simply moving up in the world, and this is something you see, by the way, a similar critique you see among leading jihadists. Uh, simply moving up in the world does not provide that crucial sense of purpose for most Russians. Basis of the social concept of the Russian Orthodox Church, which is the Russian Orthodox Church's official document outlining its position on social issues, calls grave social ills such as alcoholism and drug addiction, quote, a retribution for the ideology of consumerism, for the cult of material prosperity, for the lack of spirituality, and the loss of authentic ideals. So it's a natural logical leap to say that Putin is listening to this, 72% of Russians are at least sympathetic to this line of thought. He's listening to this and saying, aha, I have to build off of this base in order to keep my political system together and to keep myself in power, so I have to tack to the conservative, national, imperial, traditional uh, viewpoint. And yet, there should be, there's also been a lot of talk, particularly from Glenn Beck, about how, and from foreign affairs as well, Dugan is Putin's brain. Uh, you know, he's putting the Putin back in Rasputin. Um, I, I question that. I think that he's running in parallel with a lot of the kind of natural Russian, natural R Russian proclivities of moving toward authoritarianism, of relying heavily on traditional Russian uh, religious symbology at the very least. And he's, he's, he's feeding off of that and running in parallel with it. And I do believe that Putin and several members of his inner cadre do have sympathies. And there are some open neo-Eurasianists in his cadre. Um, but for the most part, I don't think it's fair to say Putin is a leading neo-Eurasianist. And in, indeed, Sergei Markov is a political consultant to Putin's staff, which means um, this is an unofficial, official statement from Putin himself. Uh, Dugan is seen as a brilliant philosopher, but brilliance and madness are very close to each other. Since 2014, the regime in Moscow has tried to keep an arm's length away from itself and Dugan's uh, more colorful rhetoric. Um, and I think this indicates we in the West have a somewhat one-dimensional view of Russia, as I mentioned earlier, and I think that rather than pushing, 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 on Russia, we might have the ability to make some form of a deal on some critical areas of shared interest. And the reason I say this is because if you've read Dugan's book, Putin versus Putin, you see that he is quite openly um, schizophrenic on the issue of Putin. He wants to like Putin when Putin acts in national imperial ways. But when Putin surrounds himself with top echelon advisors such as Sergei Lavrov, um, 
when he surrounds himself with pretty much the editorial board of the Council on Foreign Relations publication, Russia and Global Affairs, which is a subsidiary of a great magazine that we're all familiar with, Foreign Affairs, Dugan questions how committed to the neo-Eurasianist enterprise Putin is. And again, I would argue he's sympathetic, but not committed. I think Putin is your classic politician. He likes to keep his op options open. Um, and so you see, if you look at the, and I was too many to list here, if you look at the editorial board of who sits on Russia and global affairs, it's a who's who of Putin's cabinet. These are, Dugan and his followers dub these people Atlanticists, which means they are relatively friendly to the West. They would rather do on some level business with the West than the East. It doesn't mean they don't want to pivot to the East because that's where the wealth is. It just means they're not closed off to the idea of working with Europe in particular, but also Britain and the United States. Uh, and so, and this is also, by the way, in stark contrast with what's going on in China. President Xi Jinping rose to power and he kicked out people like, and I'm going to butcher the name, Wang GZ, who was a leading um, friendly voice to the West in upper echelon circles of, of China. Um, he was the one who dubbed Hu Jintao, the last Chinese president, Hu Jintao's peaceful rise strategy. And as soon as Xi took over, who's a national, Chinese nationalist himself and a militarist, um, he kicked out everybody like Wang Jizi. Wang, no, he doesn't even have a figurehead position. He has now been sidelined. So the difference between China today and Russia, I think, is that there is a, a large element of Russian upper people who actually have sympathies and ties with the West. There's a chance to back channel. And I understand with all the leaking that's going on and the way the media is, is spinning things today, back channeling is becoming synonymous with collusion. Um, but that's simply not the case. And this is potentially an opening for the West to exploit if we get together the right deal. I spoke earlier about Novorossiya and Ukraine. Um, 25 million ethnic Russians found themselves, this is, if you saw the Oliver Stone interview with uh, Putin, um, besides its ode to communism at the end, it actually wasn't half bad, it was a bit of a French kiss though to Putin, but it actually got some, you, you saw some of the way Putin's mind works. Um, Putin keeps saying, 25 million of my countrymen found themselves outside of Russia's sphere of influence at the end of the, the Cold War, and I just want to reclaim the, and protect those people. Now, how much those people actually want to be protected or reclaimed is another question entirely, but this is how he sees, again, how he sees the world. Um, in Ukraine, the southern and eastern portions in particular are predominantly Russian-speaking. These are the parts, as I mentioned earlier, that were mostly colonized in the 18th century by the Russians. It has the most close proximity to Russia culturally and historically. That is the parts that are currently in dispute. Crimea was once part of Russia until Khrushchev's time, um, and when the Soviets ceded it back, but they still retained nominal control. They have their port in Sevastopol. And so this is, this is a context that, it, it wasn't out of the blue that Russia went in to Crimea and the Donbass. And it's not, despite what people are saying in the media, people like Garrett Kasparov, who I respect immensely, and I wish he was the president of Russia, but it's simply not realistic. Uh, what he keeps saying is that I've been to Ukraine, and I'm telling you right now, they're, the people in, in the Donbass are universally opposed. Ethnic Russian speakers, you know, they're universally opposed to uh, the Russian presence. It's simply not true. There are there is an element that doesn't want Putin there, but there there obviously is a large enough element that does for these violent outbursts to be occurring. And we need to keep this in mind 
because Putin has moved nuclear, tactical nuclear weapons into the Kaliningrad. Um, we are not matching his escalations there. I don't even know anymore if we should. I previously said we might want to. But this is, given the cultural and historical connections and economic interdependence between southern and eastern Ukraine, I don't know if it's worth one American GI's life. That's just my personal thought. Countries to look out for because Putin keeps using the, well, to be fair, he's only used it once that I've, I've heard in 2015, the term Novorussia. Novorussia in classical Russian, or rather in Russian history, included Latvia and at least the Transnistria region, and I'm seeing a typo there, forgive me, uh, the Transnistria region of Moldova. Um, in Latvia, ethnic Russians make up 25% of the overall population. Ethnic Russians in Latvia have not been properly integrated into Latvian society. Um, Latvia considers, it's not all on the Russian side, the ethnic Russian side, the Latvian government has banned Russian from being spoken in official you know, in public, uh, and Latvia considers one-third of all ethnic Russians living in Latvia to be non-citizens, which means they are denied basic Latvian rights. Also, Latvian officials keep claiming that Russian provocateurs are attempting to foment unrest as they did in Ukraine. In Moldova's Transnistria region, by the way, don't ever have a golden wine. In uh, Moldova's Transnistria region, uh, you got majority ethnic Russians living there, and they're all openly pro-Putin, and NATO claims Russian troops are well-placed to move into this region. I don't think that's going to happen, though, if we can head them off. <coughs> if we have to increase our deterrent capability, fine, but we have to have some carrots in the bag as well. Putin wants something, and we're going to get to what he wants very soon. <coughs> this, I included this quote because Alexei Miller is a Moscow-based historian. I actually thought his book, The Ukrainian Question, Russian Nationalism in the 19th Century, wasn't half bad. I'm sure this is slanted because he is being allowed to speak to the press internationally, and he is Moscow-based, so I'm sure it's been approved at some level by the Kremlin. <coughs> but I think it's insightful still. What Putin is doing in Ukraine is not caused by the wish to, to get save Russians, but by geostrategic motives. I kind of disagree with him. I think there is an element of Russian ethnic pride involved. Uh, Russian, Russia's motivations may be much like those of the U.S. when it says it is fighting for democracy in countries that happen to have oil riches. The question other former republics must ask is, do we really treat Russians fairly enough, and does Putin have enough important strategic economic uh, interests in our country to use discrimination of Russia, the Russians as an instrument of his involvement? I don't think in the case of Latvia or maybe Transnistria, but I don't really think that's the case. I just don't think that he's looking to go beyond that point. I could be wrong. Um, the issue of, of, of Ukraine is part of a larger um, plan. China's building a One Belt, One Road in, uh, infrastructure to unite as much of Eurasia together in economic uh, trade as possible using land-based routes, the old Silk Road routes, uh, as opposed to see the, the, the ocean, which is dominated by the Atlanticists, the Americans. Um, and so Putin wanted to get in on this action, and he wanted to um, have as great of a share in this new budding regional economic alliance as possible, so he wanted to create a Eurasian economic union. Uh, it's kind of a 21st century geoeconomic version of recreating the Russian Empire. It relied on getting all of the former Soviet states together in this economic union. Uh, he got many of them in Central Asia, Kazakhstan, he's got Belarus. Um, 
Ukraine, though, Ukraine has always been the breadbasket of whether it was the Russian Empire or the Soviet Union. Ukraine was instrumental for this to be an economically viable endeavor. And when in 2013 Viktor Yanukovych, who was the Kremlin-friendly leader of Ukraine, halted his push to join the EU in favor of looking at joining the European Union, which Western and Northern Ukraine wanted, because they're closer to Europe, both uh, economically, culturally, geographically. Uh, Putin, that's when this whole crisis in Crimea really got going. Putin was viewing this as a New Age uh, American imperial attempt to get closer to their borders. And I don't think that was the case, but Putin viewed it that way. Because Putin's looking at the world through very 19th century Russian geopolitical terms. And we don't understand that. And so when the Ukrainians eventually overthrew Yanukovych, he was convinced, because remember this was about a year or two after the protests in Moscow were against his own return to power. And of course in Putin's mind, he's so popular. Who would dare question him other than Western agents? Um, so, you had this, this issue where Russia has these economic interests in Ukraine. Russia has military interests with their naval base in Sevastopol on the Black Sea. It's where the Russian Black Sea is based. And they're looking at, my god, um, the EU is expanding potentially into Ukraine. And potentially that means NATO membership for Ukraine, which means American military bases on our border. This is something that we have been telling the Americans we don't want for 25 years. So we're going to take action, and that is the context in which you have uh, the current crisis in, over Crimea and the Donbass. Now everybody keeps talking about Putin's speech at the 2007 Munich Security Conference as kind of his thesis statement for how he was going to behave on the world stage, and it kind of was. But again, getting back to Hillary Clinton, it, there was this inference that Munich 2007, and John McCain as well, Munich 2007 equaled Munich 1938, in which Hitler announced his plans for, you know, global domination and all that other horrible stuff. I don't believe that was necessarily the case. Again, I don't think Putin equals Hitler. Not a good guy, though, but doesn't equal Hitler. If you listen to the speech, everything in that speech was a synthesis of that which Boris Yeltsin, that which uh, Evgeny Primakov, the kind of Russian version of Henry Kissinger, and that which Putin and his cadre have been saying since the end of the Cold War. He was complaining that the U.S. has been destabilizing, in his view, has been destabilizing the world with its constant intervention with NATO and has been threatening Russian security with NATO and EU uh, double expansion, as they call it in Russia. And these are provocative actions. These are not the actions of someone who wants to do deals, of someone who wants to work amicably with us. Again, I'm not saying that Russia didn't have a role in this, but I'm saying that after the Cold War, and as we see today with the demographic realities that Russia is facing, Russia is not in the driver's seat on this, on the issue of who's being, who's starting, who started this thing. Russia's not in the driver's seat. This is, this is on the West. We keep pushing, and I understand why, but we are pushing, and what the Munich speech was, was basically a giant, forgive my language, a giant bitch fest on the part of Putin, saying, you have been doing this, you have destabilized the Middle East with Iraq, you are now moving into our, what we consider a sphere of influence, for 20 years you've been doing this, we, I thought we were going to go through the UN, 
um, how serious he was about that. That doesn't matter. This is how he views the world. And he's been consistent for 20 years, and this has been a consistent principle of post-Soviet foreign policy in Russia. Not just in Russia, though, in the, in the European states, France and Germany, um, in China, in Iran. You hear these calls all over the place for a multipolar world. And as my colleague David Goldman over at Asia Times keeps saying, looking at the way the wealth has been distributed around the world, looking at, at some of the, the rise of these other powers, we are probably living in, at the very least, a quasi-multipolar world. And so we better start comporting ourselves with this reality right quick, because we're having a proverbial lunches even right now by these powers like Russia and China do understand that we're living in a multipolar world. Who here really believes that 15 years ago, if what was going on in North Korea was going on today, uh, was going on North Korea now, was going on then, that we really would have cared what China or Russia thought about what we should do with North Korea. We're living in the multipolar world, people. Um, and that's kind of what, what Putin, that's what he, that's how he views the world. Um, not a friend, but not an enemy either. We have shared interests. What does he want? Invade Europe? Go to war with, with the West? Build a Russian Imperium in the Mideast? Rebuild the Soviet Union? Definitely not. Uh, definitely rehabilitate the Russian Empire, though. Dominate the world energy trade? Yes. Uh, humiliate the United States for its Cold War victory? Maybe as a, as a fun afterthought, but that's not... He will poke us when he can, but that's not his goal. It's the same reason how he uses the neo-Eurasianist impulse in Russia. He uses it as a means of furthering his interests, but he'll gladly drop it if he needs to get a better, better view, a better deal. This is, this is Russia's, this is who they're surrounded by. So if you're sitting in Moscow, and this is not just true of Putin, not just true of the Soviet leadership, although the Soviet leadership was wedded to an offensive revolutionary ideology, Russia today is not necessarily, and Russia of uh, the Russian Empire was not. If you're sitting in Moscow today, and you're looking around, these are pretty bad borders, especially when you look at the unhealthy nature of your demographic uh, reality. You've got Europe to your west. You've got uh, you know, the, the, the rest of Muslim populations to your south, and a rising Chinese he potential hegemon to your east. And of course, you're dealing with America and both the west and the east, and, and also the Middle East. This is not necessarily the best place to be. And unfortunately, geography also is destiny, and so you're not going to get a better deal. So keep that in mind, because there's people, I think, like Gary Gasparov, who really believe that democracy is a potential future for Russia. I am very skeptical in the same way that I'm skeptical that democracy can happen in the Middle East. Um, sorry. So to his west, we see a classical Russian geopolitical pattern. Going back to the time of the Kievan Rus, which was based in Kiev, Ukraine. It was the founding, it was where the founders of the first dynasty of Russia ruled from. And this is another reason why Russia is so gung-ho about taking Ukraine, historical reasons. You see that there has been, and then of course during after the Mongolian reign as well, the Mongolian invasion, you see this happening. Russia wants to prevent an invasion from their west. Throughout history, they've had to deal with Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. They've had to deal with the Teutonic Knights, you know, Teutons. They've had to deal with a litany of people who have constantly harried them on their west. And of course, geographically speaking, it's, there's really no defensible border there between Europe and Russia. And then also to uh, compound matters, he, you're dealing with the history of two nearly successful, very destructive west-east invasions, one from Napoleon, 
and the other one, of course, from Hitler. And so this is all fresh in your mind. You understand that Russian education imbues in their young people across the generations the notion that Russia is a continually threatened on all sides power and that we will be invaded again if we are not strong and we do not have a strong central leader. This is key because this has not changed. In a thousand years, this has not changed. So at the same time, Russia needs to do business with the Europeans, but they prefer to deal mostly with French and Germans because there's a lot of shared uh, objectives, there's a lot of shared antipathy toward the United States, toward the Anglo-American, uh, even Celtic to a degree in the world. Um, again, there's a, there's a divide between the Gaullist community in continental Europe and the Atlanticist community. Um, and so toward that end, Putin wants to divide NATO and the EU. Now, I disbelieve that on his best day he'd be able to accomplish this. Only we and the Europeans can do that. And I argue the Europeans have been dividing the transatlantic unity since the Iraq War in 2003. Of course, we played our part in that as well. But let's face it, that's when you had the first real formulations of this Moscow-Berlin-Paris access. Um, indeed, right now, despite the fact that Angela Merkel is very much in favor of the sanctions against uh, Russia, the German business community that pays for her campaigns, I've spoken about this before, um, that pays for her campaigns, and the same is true in France, the business community there, and throughout much of Europe, is opposed because they want to do business with. They don't want to have to deal with onerous sanctions. They don't want to have to pay extra money to go do illegal workarounds, which they're doing in the case of Siemens, for instance, in Germany. Illegal workarounds of doing business with, uh, with the Europeans. And so, and then we just heard from Juncker, the EU High Commissioner, about a, a few weeks ago before these, frankly, idiotic sanctions were imposed on Russia, by the U.S. Anyway, um, Juncker said, hey, look, if America does this, we're not going to agree. And obviously the European sanctions, because they're so much closer and tethered much closer to the Russian economy, they depend on energy sources from Russia, um, if they don't enforce the, the sanctions or if they don't agree to it, I don't know what we're doing. We're just further dividing ourselves from Europe. So that's his, uh, that's his goal. Um, my, another colleague of mine in American Greatness, uh, Angela Cotavillo, uh, Angela Cotavillo, rather, he wrote a great article I recommend everybody read in American Greatness in December of 2016. And I'll just read you the quote. He said that, because he agrees with me, that Russia, the threat is overstated and overplayed in the Western media, much to our detriment. But he said that Putin has played his weak hand masterfully. While he has pushed only against mostly open doors, entirely too many doors from the Baltic to the Mediterranean have been open. The doors leading to the Atlantic are ajar and undefended politically as well as militarily. Putin has moved to the edge of resistance, but serious resistance has been lacking. This means that circumstances and opponents' incompetence are incompetence, therefore, as much as or maybe more than Putin's willfulness may make of Russia a Eurasian hegemon inimical to America's interests. We're doing it to ourselves, basically. The constant pushing, the constant cajoling, coupled with, oddly enough, the inability to back up our words with deeds. And so what he says is, hey, look, and I happen to agree, if you want to go this route, engage in deterrence in daytime. Let's take the classical, you know, Stephen Cohen route. Let's say, hey, look, we'll arm up our friends. We will not commit our guys, though, to fighting on your behalf. You've got to do it on your own. And then, you know, I think Russians will actually fear indigenous armed forces far more than they'll fear American ones because they know our metrics and they know that it's going to take a lot 
to get us to engage militarily. And so I think that that kind of uneasiness about indigenous personnel being the tip of the spear, being armed to the teeth with American weapons and technology and tactics, I think that might actually bring the Russians to the table. Whereby we can extract some form of concession, we'll have to give a little bit as well, but we can create a stable relationship with this massive sick man of Eurasia, because that's what it is. It's the sick man of Eurasia. It's not the next great empire. So in on Ukraine, we've had a quasi-agreement, Minsk I and Minsk II. Minsk I collapsed, so then we got together the, the Russians, the Germans, the French, the EU leadership, and Petro Poroshenko, the leader of Ukraine, got together, tried to come up with a solution. It was a good idea, but it was completely uh, flawed, partly because the United States was disinterested, really, in having this realized. We were too busy in the Obama administration crying havoc and letting slip the dogs of economic war. Um, there is a series of sequencing problems with this agreement. Both the Ukrainians and Russians believe they can get better leverage over each other through renewed fighting, so therefore a new path is needed. Um, there's a new ac academic journal, American Affairs Journal. It's linked in with American Greatness. We swim in the same circles. Um, it's a fantastic new publication. Hall Gardner over at American University wrote a great piece on how we should move forward in Ukraine, which is to create a, a neutral Ukraine, which is, uh, and this is from his article, and it's a very long article, which is why I recommend everybody read it. It was from the spring edition of American Affairs. A general settlement with Moscow that results in Ukrainian neutrality but allows self-defense forces and permits Moscow, which is a key sticking point, permits Moscow to retain sovereignty over Crimea, will, will not necessarily result in full capitulation even if Washington must lower its sights, which we will have to, as to what can and cannot be negotiated in Moscow's view. Despite renewed conflict in eastern Ukraine since mid-December of 16, President Trump has promised to, quote, work with Ukraine, Russia, and all other parties involved to, keep them, to help them restore peace along the Russian-Ukrainian border, end quote. Yet Trump's promise to work for peace has not, does not yet fully address the question of the Crimea. It has, however, been alleged, and I believe this was true, and I think this is unfortunate that we're not going this path, that Trump officials may have been secretly attempting to make a deal with Moscow over Crimea and eastern Ukraine. That deal was leaked to the press, leading to allegations of Trump administration collusion with, Russia, with, with Moscow. By the way, this is where a lot of the investigations into the Trump administration during the campaign are emanating, is from these leaked details. Um, the leaked details basically... Um, it called for allowing Russia to keep Crimea, calling for um, working, on, working on a way to, 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 to neutralize the Donbass issue um, through negotiations and by keeping Ukraine neutral in Europe. What I mean by that is not become a part of the EU, not be made part of NATO, to be its own entity. Uh, Hal Gardner suggested creating a free trade area over, over Ukraine. There's a litany of things that we can do that we're not able to do because the leaks keep coming out and they're undermining, from a domestic political standpoint, the ability of the Trump administration to conduct foreign policy from a non-kinetic military uh, outlook. To the south, Putin favors stability and greater access to Mideast energy. Russia also wants to work with regional autocrats to prevent the spread of Islamist ideology that will ultimately blow back that Islamic ideology would ultimately blow back on Russia. 
if trends continue going the way they are in terms of secular autocrats and Russian-friendly autocrats being toppled, like Syria's Assad. Um, there's about an estimate of 2,000 Russian citizens fighting with ISIS. I think it might be more. Um, they will go back to Russia when this conflict ends with ISIS's destruction. They will go back to Russia and meld with the Muslim population there. This is the fear. And they will likely destabilize whatever peaceful relations exist in Russia between the Muslim community there, the ascendant one, and the declining native-born Russian population. Also, um, Putin wants a new balance of power in the region between himself, Iran, and Turkey over energy as well as Syria. The Russian support an Iranian-backed pipeline that will be built through Syria and into Turkey. It will deliver its goods into Turkey. And this will basically transport vast sums of Iranian energy sources through the region into Europe. And it will be dominated by Russia, which will give Putin vital strategic leverage over Europe and the West. Again, it's a pain in the neck for us. Classic geopolitical moves, though. We might want to start countering them on geopolitical, non-military realm, because uh, this is it's not worth the lives that it could need to be lost. Um, also, Putin generally, genuinely does want to stunt American influence in the region, because again, getting back to Munich 2007, Putin believes that America's actions, whether purposeful or not, is irrelevant. Putin believes, and in many ways we are, that all of these regime change operations we're engaged in are only destabilizing the region and feeding into the rise of jihadism, which again will blow back negatively into Russia at a time when Putin is desperately trying to cling on to power. That's another thing. Putin's grip on power is tenuous at best, which is why he's having such a harsh rule today. Um, the best path forward on Syria, I think now, um, given what's going on, we, we have to work with Sunni and Arab allies and Israelis to contain Iran. Obviously, the big driver of issues in that, that region is Iran, which is a client of Russia because of the energy, mostly. Um, and focus our efforts, as we seem to be doing now under the current administration, focus our efforts on destroying ISIS and other jihadist networks like al-Nusra, um, but abandon all pretense of ridding the region of Assad. That time has come and gone. We did not take it. It was about five years ago. The Obama administration chose not to. Choices made in previous administrations had lasting impacts. Elections matter and all that other jazz. Therefore, drop it and move on. Russia doesn't want it, and we need to deal with Russia on other issues. Um, press for trade, if possible, in reducing Russia's offensive role in Syria in exchange for guarantees that America will not seek regime change in Syria. Also, get Russia to agree to commit itself to stepping back from the Ukraine. There was a semblance of this notion that came into fruition last year. Putin began drawing down some of his forces, largely because he had reached the logistical limits of his operation. Everybody in the West kept talking about, wow, they're, they're really powerful today because they can do this long-ranging operation. The reason they were able to do such long-ranging operations was because they committed a very small amount of force in Syria, and they were using Iranian and existing Syrian uh, Assad's infrastructure on the ground and the troops of Iran and Assad on the ground to do most of the heavy lifting. This is all PR stunt, essentially, the Russian show of force there. And it's working for Russia. I mean, they clearly have convinced many people that the motherland is back. I question that. He was draw, trying to draw down in Syria, and he was trying to signal to the Obama administration last year that, hey, look, 
I will do a deal with you. In Syria, I'll draw down. If you commit to a fair deal over Crimea, the Obama administration, Victoria Newland in particular, said no, no. And so we now have a frozen conflict in both Ukraine and Syria because of it. Um, the whole goal, again, classical, classical Russian geopolitics, the whole goal is to secure the West, secure the South, so that they, the Russians can pivot east. That's the whole goal. That's a vast land of abundant natural resources, massive land border with a growing and prosperous China. 70 million Chinese live on the other side of the Russian border, and a lot of them are coming over. This is a problem. Russia without Siberia, it's an old saying in Russia, Russia without Siberia is not Russia, it's Muscovy, it's Moscow. And this, is the ver this map is a potential of things to come. It, 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 just by, it wouldn't be by warfare, this would just be by birth rates. And if you, if you look at Chinese rhetoric, the Chinese view the Treaty of Nerchinsk of 1689, for instance, uh, which created, helped to create modern borders between China and Russia, and solidify, helped to solidify Russia's dominion in the Far East, the Chinese have never accepted, on moral and cultural, cultural terms, the legitimacy of that treaty. They've accepted it because they've had to. Now the tables are turned. In fact, the Treaty of Nerchinsk, the, the border disagreements there, and the Treaty of Ivan also of 1858, um, these treaties were the basis of the famous Sino-Soviet split during the Cold War. There was a bunch of border clashes over these borders. And the Russians are keenly aware that things have flipped. That although they still are militarily very dominant, they don't have the manpower and they don't have the resources yet to be able to conduct operations in the West and in the Middle East at the same time conducting operations in the East. Uh, Putin has taken a careful um, detente approach with China. But the talk of a Chasha wedding, as Peter Navarro referred to a China and Russia, which is a play on Neil Ferguson's Chimerica, the marriage between China and America. Um, the, the talk of a Chusha marriage is overstated. Historically, culturally, geographically, these two powers could not be more apart in terms of what is governing their national interests. They're working together because they don't have a choice right now, in part because the U.S. Has, and the West has closed itself off to dealing more amicably with Russia. This is not something we should want to see. Having a sick man of Eurasia, Russia, and the way that we propped up, well, the West propped up the Ottoman Empire of last century to maintain a stable balance of power in the region is what we should want. Um, so Putin's pivoting to his east. Um, again, some quick facts about treaty of friendship signed between Putin and, um, between Putin and, um, the, the Chinese Treaty of Friendship, which committed in 2001 the Russian Pacific Fleet to defending against a potential American military defense of Taiwan uh, should China decide to invade. That had a sunset clause of 2021. Why, if they're such good friends? It's because the Chinese are looking at demographics saying, we can keep them cowed in Russia and on our side, and then we don't need them. We'll just overpower them with demographics. Demography is destiny. China uh, recently moved their Dongfeng 41 ICBM uh, ballistic missile to uh, Heilongjiang province, which is right across from Russia. Imagine if Canada moved ICBMs right across our border. I don't care how friendly we are, we'd be a little concerned. While Goldstein at National Interest said that this wasn't a problem, I disagree. Um, we should try to, I like to, 
I, I, I'm a, I like to, to play around with people. I like to, you know, on the world stage, I like to screw with people sometimes. I think we should actually try to help the Russians resolve the Kuril Island dispute. I, I, with all due respect to my Japanese friends, the Russians have administered that island since the end of World War II. It's a small strip of territory. If you trade with them those lands for investment into Russia's Far East, uh, and we allow for the Russian Pacific fleet to have more stable footing in, in the Pacific, we can do what the British Empire wanted to do in the 1770s with the Russian Pacific fleet, which is to use them to balance against China. Again, I think that our greatest threat long term right now is China, not Russia. Um, strategic triangles are everywhere. Uh, Putin has been trying to create a strategic triangle between India, the United States, and Russia. The Indians are on board, China's not. Given what's going on with China, with India today, the, the border dispute and how intense it's getting, there are historical and cultural um, animosities that cannot be overcome. But there's a chance, I think, for America to move in and to triangulate these, three, these two powers away from China. Um, and lastly, there's a, there's a potentiality. There are three, we keep pushing hard against the sick man of Eurasia that we keep saying is so tough. There are three potentialities that could happen. Either it does calcify Putin's intransigence to us, and therefore it makes him a willing vassal state of China, because what else does he have to lose? And therefore we're talking about a potential actual war on some level. Or we're talking about the Putin regime will collapse and be replaced by something worse, which is very possible. Since May there have been very nasty protests at the beginning in Russia, in the Far East, and moving west. Uh, Putin has created the Russian National Guard, 400,000 troops strong. He's placed it under Viktor Zolotov's command. Zolotov is a Putin apparatus ship going back to the KGB days. Uh, Zolotov's even more bloody-minded than Putin is. Uh, and or, the, or what I think would likely happen, if we continue with sanctions and pushing and pushing, is the complete collapse of Russia over the next 20, 30 years. And let me tell you something you think that the collapse of the Ottoman Empire and the creation of the modern Middle East was fun, try doing that with nuclear arms running about, biological, chemical, all of those small arms that they've inherited from uh, the Soviet Union and then Russia. Not a good thing. Um, yeah, so this is what I talked about here. Um, I was going to talk about Chechnya, but I'm working at the time. Basically, this man, uh, Katerov, Ramzan Kadyrov is a, he's an Islamist, he's Putin's man in Chechnya. He was picked because he balances the jihadist proclivities in the region with Putin's rule. Uh, that picture, by the way, on the far right is Zolotov with those three children and Viktor Zolotov. The notion that what comes after Putin, because this is the notion, and I, I listen to a lot and I read a lot of Gary Gasparov and other people who want to see liberal democracy in Russia, that is not what will happen after Putin. After Putin, one of those three terrible things I talked about will happen. And if he collapses and the Russian state doesn't collapse, but Zolotov replaces him, that guy's even worse. And so I think that better the devil you know in this case. Um, Dmitry Gubin is a Russian dissident. He wrote something um, in a Russian dissident paper that has been translated that I just I think was so good. He wrote it about a year ago. Russia is losing its position in the world. Its culture is also rapidly degrading and becoming more primitive. The degradation and simplification of culture is much worse than even which followed the 1917 revolution. The in the 1920s, an avant-garde existed under Brezhnev counterculture. Now there is no avant-garde or counterculture. There is not even the kind of high culture Russian intellectuals have long been so proud of. We no longer will struggle for a place on the pedestal of honor, as was true during the times of the US and the USSR. We are not even a country of the second world. 
That is one which lags behind but has hopes of better, like East European countries led by Poland. The third world consists of countries with decorative democracy, personalist rule, and hybrid systems. Here, Russia occupies a slot at the very top between Turkey and Kazakhstan. Rwanda and Uganda are in this very same group, but for the, for the time being, still much lower. He, he also said, in Russia today, the simplification, crudification, and primitivization of culture is an inevitable process in the descent of the country into the third world, and this means that Russia does not have the stagnation which will disappear when a new Gorbachev appears. There aren't the mechanisms that used to exist, and the new one works in a different way. Do not expect democratic revolution there. Expect something worse. It is not in the, the Russian... It's not in Russian history for there to be democracy, at least not anytime soon. And lastly, this is my philosophy when dealing with Russia. This was required reading when I was a student, this, this version of Sun Tzu, when I was a student here in Matt Owens' class. Um, to a surrounded enemy, you must leave a way of escape. This is what Sun Tzu said. I think this is very true in military as well as diplomatic terms. We're not in a war, we shouldn't be in a war of extermination or destruction against Russia. We're in a, in a geopolitical competition. And if the French and the British of the old days used to be able to work together, we should be able to work together on critical issues like terrorism, uh, you know, like dealing with the rise of China, like econ economic deals, like even climate change. These are things we should be working together on. Now, Tumu in the ninth century added on, show the enemy that there is a road to safety, and so create in his mind the idea that there is an alternative to death, then strike. Now, that's in the military realm. Applied in the diplomatic realm, I would argue that then strike means cleaving the Russians away from the Chinese and into our camp. We still have a lot in common. And this is my contact info. My website is uh, the Weikert, or I have both domains, so Weikert Report, W-E-I-C-H-E-R-T, report.com. I'm a contributing editor at American Greatness, amgreatness.com. You can email me anytime. I slowly respond. I'm sorry about that. I get a lot of inundated. I'm inundated. But I do respond eventually. Uh, the Weikert Report at gmail.com, Brandon Weikert at Twitter, The Weikert Report, Facebook, and The Weikert Report YouTube page. Do we have time for questions or no? Five? Fifteen. Okay. Uh, yes, ma'am. Nice job. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's funny, I told my wife before I came here, I said, I've got so much information, I didn't even do a slide on the Arctic, and I should have. Um, yes, to your second question, yes. Um, because of what's going on, um, Canada now has the very real risk of having hostile forces in their northern periphery, which is mostly unmanned. Um, we have a problem with um, Alaska. We're seeing an increase in Russian activity in Alaska off of Alaska's coast. Now, it's not because Putin's going to retake Alaska, but his marriage with the Orthodox Christian Church, the head of the Orthodox Christian Church since 2008 has been lobbying Putin to retake Wrangell Island. Wrangell Island, I'm talking about the one that's right off the coast to the south 
of Alaska. Um, the, the north, or rather the western hemisphere's oldest, most beautiful Orthodox Christian church is on that land. And when Seward purchased Alaska, the Russians had a clause in the agreement saying that that island, that territory, would remain under Orthodox Christian control. And to this day, and so what you're seeing when we see these bear bombers going into Alaskan airspace, it's not because they're not because they're trying to take Alaska, it's because they're trying to secure energy sources in that part of the world. And they know that Alaska surrounding that area, there's a lot. We're trying to mine it, of course, environmental policy doesn't allow that. It's another story entirely. Um, but I can foresee if we keep poking Putin the way we are. He's rebuffed these calls for reclaiming Ringle Island. But why? We see in Europe the largest um, Orthodox church was built right up the road from um, the Champs de Vies. And I never say that word right. I'm sorry, I don't speak French. But the, the, the headquarters of French government. It is the largest Orthodox church in Western Europe, and it is also the largest FSB station. Every priest coming out of that station is FSB. And so I can foresee Putin, because he likes messing around with us, and because he doesn't like the way he's been treated, and to be fair, we have not treated him fairly in some cases. Um, I can see him feeding into the claim for two reasons. Stick it in our eye. And three reasons, because he wants to preserve the landmark of Orthodox Christendom in the Northern Hemisphere, in the Western Hemisphere, and also because he wants to be able to position forces where he can go out and mine the surrounding environment, this, the international waterways, um, and secure entrance points into Russia's northern front. Um, so it, it could be a big, big problem. So yeah, the Arctic is the new, the Arctic is, is a new domain. And we don't recognize internal waters as we don't. waters. <laughs> right, and it's a problem. Um, we are at a disadvantage. It's, so I'm, I'm most known at IWP for my lectures on national security space policy, and I always liken our problems in space to how we view the Arctic and those, th those territories at the top and bottom of the world, which is we don't pay them much mind, and our enemies do, our, our rivals do. Again, I don't think Russia is necessarily an enemy, I think they're a competitor. Um, your first question, though, I don't know. Yeah, no, so I think that, see, we... We govern ourselves by electoral cycles in this country. And so two and four years is about as far out as you can view. And particularly in the 90s, believe it or not, even up until 20 years ago, elections didn't start so early. So we did things that didn't really think about long-term implications. We just kind of did it. Um, like a dog chasing a car. You know, you chase, you if you capture the car, you don't know what to do with it. And that's kind of what the Clinton administration came in and unilaterally, imperially said, all right, we're going to expand NATO and the EU. I think if it was just the EU expanding, I don't think Russia would have a problem because they want to do business with the EU. I don't think they like the idea of a unified Europe, but they're willing to do business. With, with NATO, which was explicitly a military agreement aimed at stunting Soviet power, when the Soviet Union ended, the Russians are going, why are you guys keeping NATO? And I'm going, it's a good question because it's a bit of a boondoggle at this point. I think, I can argue about that offline. But I think our policies are on autopilot, and I think that we are, by default, pushing Russia. Because we don't have an understanding of Russia. Because we're not viewing things from the perspective of Moscow. It's not meant to apologize for Putin. But this is to say that this is not the threat that you're hearing on CNN. This is not the threat. This is a competitor. 
on a geopolitical level. But this is not the threat. And they are weak, and we are pushing them, and we will make them collapse if we keep pushing. Because it will not take much. It won't be hiding. Yes? Uh, you mentioned Lavrov in there, and uh, this is a very prominent professor at uh, Georgetown that told me that uh, she knew Lavrov up when he was at the UN in New York for years. And she said his only thing he wanted in life was to become like assistant secretary of the UN. So this yeah. whole idea that you know he's over there uh, as a Putin's diplomat is, is, is sort of bizarre. And also she said his very close relationship with Henry Kissinger was developed when he was in New York. And yes. And and no, just yeah. So, so and during the, uh, I guess, the 2012 election, when Putin runs for president again, one of his big position papers, or the, in effect, position papers, speeches he gave, he it makes the following surprising statement. He says, I consider Henry Kissinger the, 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 the paradigm of, the, of, 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 of a, a politician. Uh, not whatever. And, and I talk to him every week. That's his, his, his uh, thing. So between Lauer and then, and then to finish up, uh, just recently with the Trump-Putin meeting or whatever, of course, Kissinger slips over to Moscow yeah. two weeks in advance, and he's briefing everybody. Who was the first person that Trump consulted upon election? It was right. Dr. Henry Kissinger. To your first point, the part about, um, about Lavrov at the UN. I had to do a, uh, a few years ago, I was asked to do a, uh, profile on uh, Sergey Lavrov, and something interesting that I found, now this is apocryphal, so I don't know if this is true, but I thought it was very telling, was that he and his, at the time, teenage son formed a garage band at their home and played Western rock and roll together. Um, it doesn't make them inherently pro-Western, but it shows you that cultural cues among at least a section of influential Russian leaders remain oriented generally toward the West. And that what we're going through right now, so I, I have an autoimmune, I have Crohn's disease, so I, I have flare-ups. And so I liken it to what we're going through with Russia is equivalent of a Crohn's flare-up. And so you get through it. You get through it. And you don't, you don't do what we've been doing, which is asinine. And I don't work for the government anymore, so I can say this. It's asinine. Uh, and it's dangerous. Because everybody says, I had a gentleman from Hopkins actually screaming about two weeks ago, about how I'm speaking hyperbole. And I said, no, sir, I'm not. I said, because the Russians are not Americans. They don't view, they don't understand that what is usually for cheap domestic political theater in the United States, that does not necessarily translate to actual policy. They don't understand that. And so it's, it's, it's one of those things where we have to be careful. We have to understand that the people around Putin are not all of these, they're not fascistic. They're not fascists, necessarily. Um, your second point about um, Henry Kissinger's influence, I'm, that's a very telling thing, and I'm not surprised. Um, I know there's a third point in there, I can't remember what you said, though. But um, it's interesting that you say that. Is there any other? Uh, yes, yes, sir. Um, would you um, explain uh, Vasily Klyushevsky's uh, remark that Russia is forever colonizing itself to, to yeah. the beginning of your life? Yeah. Yeah, so this was, um, uh, this is it's obviously an old quote. It was during the Russian Empire. But I like it because throughout the Soviet period, the Russians, the Russians would constantly contend that 
well, the Americans and the West, the capitalists, they were all they were all imperial colonizers, and we Russians have never done this. And some of that notion has translated through the, to Moscow today, where they think this. But this is not true. The difference was the, the Russians did colonize the surrounding environs. It's just they used land power because they were landlocked. The, the, the Western powers were seafaring powers, so we went abroad over the oceans and created this massive colonial, that Europeans did, uh, colonial European empire. Um, I included that also because there has been an obsession with demography since the beginning of Russia. So when the Russians would conquer a new territory, whether it was Novorossiya or whether it was the Russian Far East, they immediately sent scores of ethnic Russians into those new lands because they wanted to outbirth, outpopulate, if necessary, intermarry with the local populations to make them hew much closer to Russian. And so this is that's why I included the quote. You have to understand, we don't think about it, and I think it's a problem we don't think about it. We don't think about demography the way that Putin, as I said, he's been obsessed with baby making for almost the entirety of his presidency. So um, that that uh, that's why I included that quote, and that was the context, is they've always been obsessed with uh, and this goes back to the Mongolian invasion. When they were invaded, the Mongolians systematically, uh, you know, they, they raped, they pillaged. It was terrible what the Mongolians did, and so the Russians never want to endure that again. So uh, it's always about uh, population pushes politics. At least over there. So, yes, ma'am, we got one. So last one. Sorry, good question right now. On the question that pointed out the issues with the Chinese men um, yeah. filling the, the need there for Russian women. Is there right now currently from the Putin's government a, um, any kind of policy to legitimize those illegal Chinese men and maybe lucify them, so to speak, and make them for the sake of purpose? I, I do think that that is something, I think that that's something he would probably do, because again, he's a pragmatist at the end of the day. You know, he's not going to be able to push all them out. The problem is, it's the same reason why people in the United States are not for amnesty. Because once you legalize this act, which is inherently an illegal pardon me, act, that does have long-ranging implications for the political and social structure in that country. Once you legitimize it and legalize it, it's not going to stop them from coming back, more of them coming. And what we're seeing in China is because they're so insistent, if they don't maintain the meteoric growth that they've maintained economically, then the Chinese Communist Party will be threatened. So they, have, they can't bring everybody into the cities, just they can't. So what they're doing is they're using the open Russian border as a kind of pressure valve, and they're doing this sporadically. And so Putin has to figure, and this is why I think it would be great if we stabilize relations in Europe and the Middle East with Russia and help him even channel his more competitive energies into the Far East and his resources. It's probably not going to be able to pan out. I think that he's... I think he's running a full house off of Paris, so I, I don't think he's going to be able to do it, but I think he thinks he can. I think he thinks he can. And so he's going to give it the old Kremlin try. So, um, but in terms of legalizing them, I, I, I think he probably, if he pushed it and shoved, he would again pragmatism. I don't think he wants to, though, because he knows that, they, and furthermore, the local governments there, the Putin, so the Putin appointees who are running things, don't want that, because then they know they're going to be overrun. Thank you so much. Um, I will be here for a few minutes if anybody has questions. Or